here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure. I can't I can't tell you 100% for positive that the Taliban have outlawed laughter. I know they they don't allow music. That's a start. Um don't allow women's rights or women to uh, come out from under blankets of some sort. But I, th- I, I think I think they're not fond of laughter, too. Because otherwise, I, uh, they would be laughing right now at, at the spectacle of being criticized for, being a con- uh, for having a country under their thrall where they're a fringe minority of the national religion but claim that they're the national religion and uh, for forbidding things that are either pleasurable or important to people, to the general population, and that those criticisms are coming from a country where a fringe part of the national of the majority religion is declaring itself the national religion and prohibiting things that are good for people's health like vaccinations but since the Taliban can't laugh we'll laugh for them hello welcome to the show Smile, 
Inventing something new in style I'm bending you I'm lucky I've got to know Someone who has helped me grow Learning lessons till I'm From the home of the homeless, yes, I'm sticking with it. I don't care. You can stay unhoused if you like. I think many of them are unapartmented, too. But anyway, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Now, ladies and gentlemen... When COVID-19 struck Europe about a year and a half ago, hospitals were plunged into a health crisis that was still badly understood. But there was data coming out of China. There were data coming out of China, which had a four-month head start. If machine learning algorithms could be trained out of that data to help doctors understand what they were seeing and make decisions, it could save lives. This is from the MIT Technology Review. In a dreaming moment, Quote, I thought if there's any time that AI could prove its usefulness, it's now, says Laura Wyantz of Maastricht University in the Netherlands. But it never happened, not for lack of effort. Research teams around the world stepped up to help the AI community, in particular rush to develop software that many believed would allow hospitals to diagnose or treat patients faster, bringing much-needed support to the front lines. In theory... In the end, many hundreds of predictive tools were developed. None of them 
made a real difference. Some were potentially harmful. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the damning conclusion of multiple studies published in the last few months. In June, the Turing Institute... No, it's not about getting in your car and heading for the uh, Lake District. Turing, named after the uh, inventor of the computer. Look it up. That's the uh, National Center in the UK for Data Science and AI put out a report summing up discussions of a series of workshops it held late last year. The clear consensus, AI tools had made little, if any, impact in the fight against COVID. Well, they're busy running traffic lights. This echoes the results of two major studies that assessed hundreds of predictive tools developed last year. Wynant, that's the uh, woman, the epidemiologist, Laura Wynant, from Maastricht University, is lead author of one of the reviews, a review in the British Medical Journal, still being updated, looking at 232 algorithms for diagnosing patients or predicting how sick those with the disease might get. They found that none of them were fit for clinical use. Just two have been singled out as being promising and enough for future testing. It's shocking, she says. I went, at it, I went into it with some worries, but this exceeded my fears, unquote. Her study is backed by another large review carried out by Derek Driggs, a machine learning researcher at Cambridge University and his colleagues, published in Nature Machine Intelligence. There's a magazine getting a little ahead of itself. The team zoomed in on deep learning models for di- diagnosing COVID and predicting patient risk from medical images, like from chest x-rays, x-rays and chest computer tomography scans. They looked at 415 published tools, like Winans and her colleagues concluded none were fit for clinical use. This pandemic was a big test for AI and medicine, says Driggs. He's working on a machine learning tool to help doctors during the pandemic. It would have gone a long way to getting the public on our side, he says, but I don't think we passed that test. Both teams found that researchers repeated the same basic errors in the way they trained or tested their tools. Incorrect assumptions about the data often meant the trained models did not work as claimed. They uh, still believe AI, AI has the potential to help, but they're concerned that it could be harmful if built in the wrong way because they could miss diagnoses or underestimate risk for vulnerable patients. Quote, there's a lot of hype about machine learning models and what they can do today, says Driggs. Unrealistic expectations encourage the use of these tools before they are ready. The two researchers both say a few of the algorithms they looked at have already been used in hospitals and some are being marketed by private developers. Quote, I fear they may have harmed patients, says Wynitz. What went wrong? Many of the problems are linked to the poor quality of the data that researchers used to develop their tools. Information about COVID patients, including medical scans, was collected and shared in the middle of a global pandemic, often by the doctors struggling to treat those patients. Researchers wanted to help quickly. These were the only public data sets available. So many tools were built using mislabeled data or data from unknown sources. Driggs highlights the problem of what he calls Frankenstein data sets spliced together from multiple sources 
And they can contain duplicates. This means that some tools end up being tested on the same data they were trained on, making them appear more accurate than they really are. And social media platforms like Twitter amplify expressions of moral outrage over time because users learn such language gets rewarded with an increased number of likes and shares. That's a study out of Yale. These rewards have the greatest influence on users collected w- connected with politically moderate networks. Social media's incentives are changing the tone of our political conversations online, said Yale's William Brady in the Yale Department of Psychology. He led the research with Molly Crockett, an associate professor of psychology at Yale. They measured the expression of moral outrage on Twitter. How dare they? These people are fascists. During real-life controversial events and studied the behaviors of subjects in controlled experiments designed to test whether social media's algorithms, which reward users for posting popular content, encourage outrage expressions. This is the first evidence that some people learn to express more outrage over time because they are rewarded by the basic design of social media, Brady said. The study was published in the journal Science Advances. I prefer the journal Science Retreats, but that's just me. And now, the apologies of the week moved up to the, the head of the show for no good reason. We're so sorry. The Samsung heir, Lee Jae-yong, has been released from a South Korean prison. He's now on parole. He served 207 days in jail, just over half his sentence, after being convicted of embezzlement and bribery. The case involved South Korea's former president, Park Geun-hee. He's also in jail for bribery and corruption. Maybe they were cellmates. Samsung was founded by Lee's grandfather, He has been the de facto head since 2014. He made a brief statement to reporters outside the prison. Quote, I've caused much concern for the people. I deeply apologize. I'm listening to the concerns, criticisms, worries, and high expectations for me. I will work hard, unquote. He was sent to prison for two and a half years by high court in January. At the time of his verdict... The court said Lee actively provided bribes and implicitly asked the president to use her power to help his smooth succession at the head of Samsung. The Justice Ministry said it made the decision to release him after considering the effects of the pandemic on South Korea's economy and global markets. (laughs) Really? In a statement, President Moon's office said his release was made in the national interest and asked for understanding. Well, you don't got it, sir. I don't understand. He did it. But the pandemic. Tesla has apologized to Model S buyers. Well, it's about time. Oh, no. Current ones. Who are experiencing significant delays without communication. Sounds like the Tesla I know. However, they're short on explanation, is Tesla. And there's some worrying things going on, according to Electrek.co. Last week... There were reports of less Tesla buyers asking the automaker for better communications over Model S deliveries. Many who placed orders for the new model early in the year are seeing their delivery dates pushed several times, even having vehicle identification numbers been taken away without any communication from Tesla. Tesla keeps delivering the new electric 
sedan. Some people who placed orders more recently are taking delivery before people had placed orders earlier in the year prior to Tesla increasing the price of the base Model S by $10,000. In a new email this week, Tesla apologized. Hi! It says, we're contacting you regarding the timing of your Model S delivery, as we recently updated your Tesla account to reflect the most accurate estimate. You may see a delay with regard to your delivery timeline. We understand this may be disappointing and apologize for any inconvenience this may have caused. Please continue to check your Tesla account for any changes to your timing, which should remain updated to represent our best estimate. Thank you for your ongoing patience. Best regards, the Tesla team. Tesla didn't offer much in terms of an explanation for the continuing delays. Model S buyers are now reporting that their August delivery timelines have been pushed to October again without explanation. Some buyers are being told their delivery timeline has been updated to next February. That's the Tesla I know. Disclosure paperwork filed Wednesday revealed that Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky failed to report his wife's investment in a company that makes a COVID-19 treatment to report that investment on time. The filing shows that Kelly Paul purchased somewhere between 1000 and 15000 in Gilead, which makes remdesivir. That's an antiviral drug used to treat COVID-19. Under the tw- law, let's just call it the law, To stop lawmakers from trading on insider information, Paul should have reported the sale within 45 days. He disclosed it 16 months late. This week he addressed the delay. Hello, delay. He said it was an error. Okay. I apologize. I was bad on the reporting. See, I have to do this myself. I type it into the computer. So about two weeks after Kelly made the stock purchase, I typed it in the computer, and I thought I pressed send. And I didn't. But he defended the investment. We're very proud of trying to invest in a cure, he said. Some reports indicate the purchase was made after Congress was briefed on the threat of the coronavirus, but before the public was largely aware of the danger. But Paul's spokesperson points to other reports dating the day before Kelly made the purchase indicate the information was already out in the public. Mexico's President André Manuel López Obrador, more names please, this week asked the country's indigenous Mexica peoples for forgiveness for the abuses inflicted on them during the bloody 1521 Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire. López Obrador spoke in front of a large replica temple built to commemorate 500 years since the fall of the ancient Aztec capital Tecnochichitlan to Hernán Cortés the leader of the invading Spanish force, you may recall from school. Cortes and his allies defeated the Aztec leaders and the Mexican people who lived in Tenochtitlan, which later became Mexico City. Well, that was one improvement. They looted and razed the city, ushering in three centuries of Spanish domination. Today we remember the fall of the great Tenochtitlan, and we apologize to the victims of the catastrophe caused by the Spanish military occupation, López Obrador, said. He said the Spanish monarchy and the Roman Catholic Church should formally apologize for the atrocities committed during that conquest. Don't hold your breath, sir. Vestavia Hills, Alabama City Council member Kimberly Cook apologized this week following a comment she made on her Facebook page 
that agreed with someone who likened so-called vaccine passports. Here we go again to the yellow stars Jewish people were forced to wear during the Holocaust. She has since deleted the post, so it never happened. She shared Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall's recent clarification of the state's new vaccine passport law, which seeks to ban efforts by state or local entities to make residents show their vaccine card and also bans businesses from enforcing such a law. After co- someone commented that pretty soon we'll be asked to wear a gold U on our breast pockets a la Germany's Jewish badges, Cook responded, yes, this analogy fits perfectly. This is what the vaccine passport bill seeks to prevent, I believe. Following some, yes, outrage on social media, thank you, Yale, Cook issued the following statement. I'm deeply sorry for my Facebook comment. There's no comparison to the treatment of Jews during the Holocaust and vaccine passports, and it was offensive and thoughtless of me to suggest such a comparison. I have personally met a Holocaust survivor and understand the vile evil that was done to them. I was in too much of a hurry when I responded to comments made by others on my Facebook post, and I did not think carefully about what I wrote. I apologize to my constituents for any embarrassment or hurt this has caused them and humbly admit my mistake, unquote. Yes, you have to meet a Holocaust survivor these days because they got rid of all the history books. A Catholic priest in Edmonton, Canada, is apologizing after calling reports of unmarked graves at former residential schools lies last month. You could have seen this coming. Reverend Marcin Moroniuk said in services at Our Lady Queen of Poland Parish in July that discoveries of mass graves at residential school sites were lies and manipulation. Video footage of him speaking during and after masses that day was broadcast on YouTube since it's been removed. Vice World News shared excerpts of the recording on Wednesday. We are in the presence of lies here in Canada, Moroniuk said in Polish, and I protected him. They were dying from natural causes, he said of the children, and were buried in regular cemeteries. And that's why we're living now in a great lie. He said he asked to see mass graves at a residential school site during a trip to Kamloops, British Columbia, without disclosing he was a priest. He was told he couldn't because the area is a sacred place. He brought up the graves of murdered Polish Jews in the town of Żawabny, the uh, Polish Jews, so a Polish town, during the Second World War. As a comparison, historians have concluded Polish Jews were murdered by their Christian neighbors there in July of 1941. He called this a great lie, claimed German Nazis were to blame. The parish referred CBC News to the Catholic Archdiocese of Edmonton. Spokesperson said the Archdiocese was made aware of these statements and immediately requested an apology, which the priest delivered to Edmonton's archbishop. Statement released from the archdiocese, and Moroniuk apologizes unequivocally, unequivocally and expresses deep regret for those statements and that the archbishop has accepted the apology. He's going to apologize during Masses on Sunday, the archdiocese spokesman said. Oh, to be in Edmonton today to hear those apologies. Erica Badu took to Twitter this week to issue a public apology to the Obamas for being a terrible guest 
after sharing footage from Barack Obama's exclusive 60th birthday bash in Martha's Vineyard. Like, who else would be having his birthday? I mean, a celebration for... It's exclusive, because he it's his birthday, you see. That's USA Today's writing. Mr. and Mrs. Obama, please forgive me for being the terrible guest at such a sacred event for your family. I was so inconsiderate. Thank you for all your love. What an example of how not to be, said Badu. She closed her apology with her real name, Erica Abby Wright. Singer also shot down fan claims that the former first couple made her take down the video and apologize publicly. Nah, sis, it's just right thing, she said. Some of the A-list guests took it upon themselves to share photos and the videos from the party, even though it was scaled back because of concerns about COVID. Badu posted a now-deleted video next to a maskless Barack Obama, who was enjoying himself while dancing with guests. Grammy award-winning artist H.E.R. shared a shot of her standing between the former president and first lady. Happy birthday to the coolest Barack Obama. What an amazing night! Six exclamation marks. That's from a since-deleted post by H.E.R. Artist Trap Beckham, who performed a special version of his hit single, Birthday Chick, during the event, also shared many photos and videos. He took down the footage, but it was widely reshared. Just wanted to take time out to apologize to Obama and staff for using my social media Saturday as if it were a regular party, he tweeted. To be honest, I was just excited. I never knew it would blow up like this. Speaking of blowing up, you know the site, the website Snopes.com has long been a um, fact-checking site looking up news stories, researching them to see if they were, uh, in fact, factual. Well, the um, founder and head of it, David Mickelson, has been plagiarizing news stories that he's aggregating on Snopes.com under a fake name, and um, putting them under his fake name instead of the source of the st- the sources of the stories that he uh, steals from. Pla- uh, sorry, plagiarizes, plagiarizes, uh, plagiarism. Sorry, writes to executives at Snopes underline undermines our mission and values. Full stop. It has no place in any context with this organization. We invite readers to let us know. Here, if they find any other examples of plagiarized content. We talk often in the newsroom about the priceless value of reputation that we're worth no more than the credibility we maintain with our community. To the staff, past, present, and future, who are undoubtedly impacted by these findings, we're deeply sorry. While an individual's actions have caused this breach of our ethics, we hope the extraordinary writers and editors who work at Snopes do not see their efforts and reputation undermined by these missteps. That's the vice president of editorial and the chief operations officer for Snopes. It was a bunch of stories that uh, Mickelson plagiarized. More than 50, I believe. Check me on that. Well, uh, he, he can check me. He's... And Bar Rescue, it's a thing, it's a host, it's a, no, it's a show, and the host, John Taffer, is doing a renovation on his reputation. After a controversial Fox News interview where he compared unemployment bar and restaurant workers to, quote, hungry dogs, he apologized after video of his interview with Laura Ingram went viral in the interview. Taffer and Ingram blamed unemployment benefits during the COVID thing. 
for staffing problems in the bar and restaurant industry. I had a friend in the military who trains military dogs. He said they only feed a military dog at night because a hungry dog is an obedient dog. Well, if we're not causing people to be hungry to work, then we're providing them with all the meals they need sitting at home. These benefits make absolutely no sense to us. After the predictable backlash, he tweeted out an apology regarding an interview I did yesterday. I want to sincerely apologize for using a terrible analogy in reference to the unemployment situation. That was not my intention, and I greatly regret it. My comment was an unfortunate attempt to express a desire for our lives to return to normal. I recognize this has been a challenging year for everyone, and I'm eager for the hospitality industry to come back stronger than ever. Nice try, babe. Nice tripology. And Spirit Airlines requested some flight attendants to volunteer during their days off. During a time when the company struggled with thousands of flight cancellations in the past week. The directors of in-flight operations asked Spirit flight attendants to volunteer at the Fort Lauderdale airport to help guests at kiosks and ticket counters. Internal emails uh, obtained by Insider.com showed the email request did not clarify whether the volunteer shifts were to be paid or unpaid. We simply, simply need your willingness to help said the email. Representative from the Spirit Airlines Association of Flight Attendants sent a blistering email in response. Spirit, quote, has left you and your fellow flight attendants stranded in airports with their angry passengers for hours and even days on end. The head of the uh, Flight Attendants Association. The company that wants you to sit on hold for hours on end, surpassing legal duty periods and jeopardizing rest periods, invading on your days off without remorse. Now they want a favor... Question mark. One spirit staffer who received the volunteer request said she was left stranded by the airline in a major northeastern city for four days during the cancellations. John Banderitis, spirit COO, later apologized for the email that requested flight attendants volunteer their time. Quote, the reason for this late evening email is to address an unfortunate email message from our team soliciting help at the Fort Lauderdale Airport. He wrote, The message was poorly timed and insulting. There are no excuses. I'm very sorry. And I apologize, unquote. Spirit's mass cancellations were caused by a poorly timed combination of bad weather, system outages, and staffing issues. I don't know how you would time those well. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of our broadcast.
from Southern California, this is Le Show. You know that the United States is sending troops back to Afghanistan to help get the troops that were withdrawing from Afghanistan out of there safely. Now, about 600 British troops are going to Afghanistan to assist British nationals to leave. And then, won't they have to send more troops to help those go home? Isn't that a way of just keeping troops in Afghanistan? Even though, no, it's not. About 4,000 Brits are still in Afghanistan. And strangely enough, they don't want to be there anymore. The uh, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction has unburdened himself of some thoughts at this juncture. Current and future attempts by the United States to use its military might abroad might very well meet the same fate as the country's nearly two-decade war in Afghanistan. He cites, does John Sopko, the IG, repeated failure of top officials to learn from their mistakes. Well, sir... Homo is not sapiens. He unleashed the blunt assessment this week during a discussion with reporters, accusing wave after wave of top-ranking defense officials and diplomats of lying to themselves as well as the American public. I went back and read some stuff from 2012 when Anthony Cordesman, a uh, national defense think tanker, was saying exactly the same thing about our... uh, expedition to Vietnam. Uh, Sorry, Dr. Freud, our expedition to Afghanistan, that uh, the generals and the defense officials, civilians, were lying in order to keep the thing from collapsing in 2012. Says Sopko, now we exaggerated, over-exaggerated, our generals did, our ambassadors did, all of our officials did to go to Congress and the American people about We're just turning the corner, he said. We turned the corner so much we did 360 degrees. We're like a top. Speaking to the Defense Writers Group, Sopko said that while there were multiple reasons the U.S. failed to create a more effective and cohesive Afghan military, some of it was, quote, this hubris that we can somehow take a country that was desolate in 2001 and turn it into a little Norway, unquote. Another key factor was mendacity. Top-ranking U.S. military leaders, quote, knew how bad the Afghan military was, but they tried to keep such problems hidden. Every Quote, every time we had a problem with the Afghan military, we changed the goalposts. The U.S. military changed the goalposts and made it easier to show success. And then, finally, when they couldn't even do that, they classified the assessment tool. He cautioned part of the problem with setting up Afghanistan for success hinged on Washington's refusal over almost 20 years to plan for long-term success. We've highlighted time and again we had unrealistic timelines for all of our work, he said, pointing to his uh, reports over the past 12 years. Forced our generals, forced our military, forced our ambassadors, forced uh, U.S. aid Agency for International Development to try to show success in short timelines, which they themselves knew were never going to work. These short timelines, which have no basis in reality except for the political reality of the appropriations cycle, or whatever is popular at the moment, are dooming us to failure. That, unfortunately, is a problem not just with Afghanistan, he said. I think you find it in other countries where we've gone in. Harsh.
wouldn't you say? That's how it looks from here. How does it look from over there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, where the wine club is closing, we're drinking what's left. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, being disassembled as we speak, I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Scrim and Scram. They're getting the heck out of here, <laughs> brothers. Welcome to a very late-stage edition of Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Taliban Foundation, where the future is today. Welcoming our new sponsor. Mm-hmm. And, well, my younger brother, it's truly weak to ponder the pace of change. Hmm? Ah. True words have never been read off a script by my younger brother. <laughs> I'll say this. With the Taliban taking one provincial capital after another, mm-hmm. there has never been a better week to be a seller of Toyota off-road vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> Good week to be a buyer, too. Mm-hmm. Any Tundra you don't sell in the next two weeks is going to end up as a Taliban tank. <laughs> <laughs> I should say my brother and I have to apologize for any noise in the back. Background on today's program. Yes, they're stripping our studio for parts. And uh, yes, it's a good idea not to ask who they are. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, you're on Kazai Talk. Hello, this is Ashraf, a longtime president of Afghanistan. I think I've called before. Uh, my files have been biked away. So. Ashraf, President Khani, of course we know who you are. As my younger brother used to describe you, sir, you're the one who still believes. Believe the surge didn't refer to COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wish I had the luxury at this moment of fake laughter, but uh, given our background of mutual acrimony, I uh, I wouldn't be calling if this weren't an existential emergency. Well, uh, my esteemed successor, uh, our airwaves are yours for as long as they're ours. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I must admit I don't uh, listen every day. Join the club. Or really any day. Join Join the the club. club. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure you've long since made plans for, shall we say, strategic relocation if and when the uh, time uh, came or comes. Uh, Well, let me say on behalf of my brother that as soon as he got out of government, he was once again able to make long-range plans. (laughs) (laughs) Well, easier for you, Hamid, than for me uh, to leave. I mean, I'm just wondering if uh, there might be a shipping container uh, you've got in your plans that might uh, submit itself to the installation of uh, some air holes. I know Mahmoud has some tools. Well, a couple of my international customers every once in a while needs a Toyota to do a cockpack, they sure. Well, as long as I know that option is available, I can start having my staff uh, shopping for very portable food. Sure, N- no need to hash this all out where anybody could hear it. And nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, this could end up in a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Its best chance at an audience is if Elon Musk blasts it to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. President, good luck, and thanks for the call. Mm. He sounded just a bit terrified. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard him so frightened since Dick Cheney invited him to go hunting. <laughs> 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 Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hello, this is Margot at the Taliban Central. 
this is a special VIP advisory that your location is targeted for attack next Thursday, August 12th, sometime between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Your local cable provider can give you less specific details. I cannot take your feedback. I'm late for my burqa fitting. Goodbye. Mm. Well, you can't say the Americans didn't influence our culture in the two decades they were here. <laughs> Hello, you're on Cars Like Talk. Hey, Ham Heed. It's uh, George W. calling you from the ranch. Long-time ex-president, second-time caller. That's that's for memory. All the files are locked up for 50 years. That was Cheney's idea. Uh, Mr. President, this is Mahmoud. Thank you for calling, sir. That's it? I just Sir, it's Hamid. Please go on. Well, thanks to someone. <laughs> Look, I got to say, nobody feels worse than I do about how all this worked out. Uh, we got attacked by the evildoers. Mm-hmm. We had to strike back, or everybody in the world would think that uh, they could just knock down our big buildings and that, uh, pardon the expression, mm-hmm. that blows a big hole in the old economy. So, Sir, this is uh, Mahmoud again. Hey, Laura says hi. <laughs> Sir, I think what rankles us a little bit on this side of the Hindu Kush is that uh, after just two years of our war, you pulled out a lot of troops and resources out of here to uh, go do another war. Hey, good point, Mama Duda. Uh, but uh, we were just uh, so impressed with how much good progress you people were making. We thought, okay, onward, next. <laughs> Nobody said it was going to be a quagmire or, or even said what that was. I mean, nobody in their right mind's eye saw this as a 20-year kind of deal, but, I mean, a uh, heck of a lot of American money flowed your way. Guys must, guys must be doing okay, right? Sir, we are seriously discussing leaving our homeland in the very near future. Well, sure, they tell me you can get so much more house for the buck in Tajikistan. But look, anyway, fellas, especially you, Hamdeed, I just want you to know how sorry I am about how it all turned out, so... I'm sending you a little something as soon as you have a new address. You let me know, we'll uh, we'll slap in the good old U.S. mail. Or if there's Afghan mail. Uh, uh, sir, if I may ask, uh-huh. what is this gift? <laughs> I, I did a painting of your brother, the former president, mm. in the tub. That's kind of my thing now. The critics say I'm in my tub period. <laughs> well, I, I very much look forward, forward to it, sir, and I, I shall hang it above my actual tub. <laughs> but uh, now I'm sorry. Uh, to you, we're out of time. Okay, well, Laura still says hello. And my brother says thanks for the call. We had help today from Taliban moving and storage. More moving, less storage. Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. Just another 30 seconds. Looking forward to opening a liquor store in Huntington Beach, California. I'm Hamid. And I'm Mahmoud. Goodbye from Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. And now, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. Anybody can name uh, the uh, mascots of this year's Olympics? I didn't think so. Primetime viewership for the Tokyo Games plummeted more than 40% 
from the last summer games, according to NBC. The um, primetime Olympic broadcast averaged 15.5 million viewers, the network said, the lowest-rated Summer Olympics in decades, a steep drop-off from 2016 in Rio de Janeiro, which got 26.5 million. The 2012 Games in London, which drew 31.1 million, and Beijing, 27.7 million. NBC says this year's Olympics were the most widely streamed in history, with almost 6 billion minutes of content viewed on social media, and the network's online platforms. USA Network, it's a part of NBC, in case you didn't know, posted the highest primetime Summer Olympic ratings on average for any cable channel in history. Hasn't been on cable all that much, all that long. The late-night Olympic show, Prime Plus, averaged a 4% increase from 2016, maybe because the network broadcast some events live. Declining TV ratings aren't unique to the Olympics, but 48% of U.S. adults reported spending less time watching the Olympics this year than in previous games. 48%. Some 37% said they watched roughly the same amount. 15% watched more than in past years. But as we say, declining ratings aren't unique to the Olympics. The last year, the NBA Finals posted far lower ratings than in pre-COVID years. The Super Bowl earned its smallest audience since 2007. Major League Baseball faced the lowest World Series ratings in history. And viewership for award shows dropped off. Are you still out there? Despite flagging flagging primetime ratings, NBC is placing this year's Olympics in the win column, dubbing the Games, quote, the largest media event ever. Most important, according to NBC Sports Chairman Pete Bivacqua, told the uh, Wall Street Journal he did, this year's Games will be, quote, very profitable for NBC. No, sorry, very, very profitable for NBC. And the old switcheroo, the Russians are not taking their fifth-place finish in the medal count of the 2020 Games. Well, both commentators and officials from the country are accusing the United States and others of rigging the Games. This comes after the Russian Olympic Committee finished fifth. It's the lowest finish since the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm for Russia. According to the Daily Beast, the Russian lawmaker Alexei Zoravlov, Zoravlov described other competing countries at the Games as, quote, a pack of Russia-phobic beasts headed by the United States. Olga Skabeyeva, who is a television host on Russia's state-owned channel, echoed the statement saying on the air that Summer Games were the, quote, clearest example of total Russophobia. These Olympic Games, she said, stink. Global sports forever ceased being an honest competition, turning into a cheap political farce. She didn't provide any evidence that the Americans forced the IOC to take medals away from Russians. But that didn't stop others from agreeing with the claims. Americans are freaks, moral freaks, said the deputy speaker of the Russian state, Duma. And I think he did mean that in a nice way. And Japan's Mio Goto will be getting a replacement gold medal after that local mayor bit her original medal during a celebration ceremony. 
Nagoya Mayor Takeshi Kawamura sparked backlash last week, as you know if you heard it on this program, removed his face mask to bite the softball player's medal at a ceremony in her honor. In addition to being accused of behaving disrespectfully, Kawamura was also criticized for removing his mask while standing in front of a backdrop, calling on people to wash their hands and social distance. He bit it even though athletes are putting on medals themselves or on their teammates during social media ceremonies, during medal ceremonies as part of infection prevention measures. Sorry, I can't understand it, said an Olympic fencer from Japan. The 72-year-old mayor received over 7,000 complaints about his behavior. So Olympic organizers announced this week Goto will receive a replacement medal, which will be paid for by the International Olympic Committee. Believe in the history of the games. That's the first thing they've paid for. Just kidding. And now news from outside the bubble. Poland's parliament this week passed legislation that would put an end to most legal claims for properties confiscated after World War II. This is reported by the German broadcaster Deutsche Welle. The Germans and the Poles. Again, the bill states that administrative decisions can no longer be challenged in court after the expiration of a 30-year period. This essentially prevents Jews from recovering property seized by Poland's communist-era authorities. The legislation already passed Poland's lower house of parliament still needs to be signed by the president, President Duda. I said President Duda. Before it can come into force. Don't call him dude. The controversial bill has increased tensions between Poland and Israel, which had previously summoned the Polish ambassador over the proposed legislation. I continue to oppose any attempt to rewrite history. Poland knows what the right thing to do is repeal the law, said Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid. A 2018 law which criminalizes speech suggesting Polish complicity in the Holocaust had already put a strain on Poland-Israel. Relations. New law also prompted a backlash from the United States. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said Washington was troubled by the Polish legislation, quote, severely restricting restitution for Holocaust survivors and owners of property confiscated during the communist era. In its statement, Secretary of State urged Duda not to sign the bill. News from outside the bubble. And now quickly, news of the godly. There's an inquiry going on in Scotland now about um, churches and kids, and the thing. The chair of the inquiry, Lady Smith, I guess Black Mombazo couldn't make it, um, took evidence that children were abused in the care of Benedictine monks at two schools in the Highlands. The schools were described in testimony as, quote, havens for pedophiles, unquote. The inquiry also examined the systems, policies, and procedures in place, how these were applied, mm, and whether systemic failures enabled abuse to happen. The uh, chair, Lady Smith, said a number of monks were serial sexual predators and because of the movement of monks between the two schools they were able to target victims at both schools. Children were cruelly beaten by sadistic monks at both schools and some beatings had sexual overtones. Children were humiliated and punished inappropriately and excessively. Some children complained to monks in positions of responsibility about being abused. They received either non-existent or inadequate responses. Knowing that they would not be believed, other children refrained from complaining about abuse. Hearings in the case study took place 
between June of 2019 and October of the same year, the inquiry heard evidence from 43 witnesses. The monks were not trained to look after children on a residential basis, said Lady Smith. They lacked the capacity and ability to do so. The notion that untrained monks could care for school-aged children was seriously flawed. And if you think things were bad in the Highlands, you should see the Lowlands. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature is broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Ain't no more here. I'll go look for some and bring it to you next week, same time, on this same radio station, or whatever time you want, on your audio device of choice. And it would be just like staying in Afghanistan for another ten years, if we... If you'd agree to join with me, then would you already thank you very much, uh huh? A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk and to Pam Halstead and Thomas Walsh at WWNO in New Orleans. That's where Thomas is. The email address for this program your chance to get Cars I Talk t shirts. Those are going to get rarer than hen's teeth, believe me. And the playlist of the music you hear. Here, all there. HarryShearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer.
The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.